blessed to have over in Columbus, we were blessed to have a speaker come not too long ago. And he, he said something that kind of sounded a little controversial, but I think it's really important. He, he asked us, why was the big book written? And, and of course, the, you know, whatever's going through your mind right now is, is probably a good answer. But the answer he gave was to protect us from the old timers. To protect us from the old timers. What does that even mean? I mean, the old timers, we hold them in esteem. We look up to them. They've been around for a long time. They've got the time that, that us, us very young folks really desire. So what? why do we need protection from them? Well, it's not that we need protection from them. It's just that we need to keep the message of AA simple. And we need to keep the message of AA um, unified. And the truth of the matter is, is that not everybody has the same message of AA that they're sharing. And that's not a critique of anybody's sobriety, but it is an acknowledgement that what these guys found was the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And actually, they didn't really even find that initially. It was just six steps initially. You can read about that in one of the stories. But being alcoholics, Bill decided to make it a double, and it became a 12 step of Alcoholics Anonymous. And thank God it did. And that's what they figured out. That's what the program was founded on. And the reason why that statement about protecting us from the old timers is such is that um, I don't know exactly how it is in your groups, but it's possible to go into meetings of AA searching for an answer because my life is completely burned to the ground and hear somebody say things like, well, don't drink, come to meetings, and you'll be okay. And then they'll say, and after you do that, keep coming back. Meeting makers make it. And these are, these are, I love those sayings. They're important sayings. But those sayings have often become confused with the program of recovery. Because that's not the program of recovery. I love the fellowship. I go to minimum five meetings a week. I absolutely love being around old-timers, newcomers. I love sharing this message with folks. But in my experience, going to meetings did not bring about recovery in my life. Um, it, it definitely exposed me to the hope of recovery, but it wasn't until I started working the 12 steps that I actually discovered recovery. I say discover recovery like it was like it was hidden, but really it was God working in my life. It was when when I decided willingness was going to be the thing that took me from one step to the next, and I was able to embark on a journey which led to the opening up of my heart and God just completely changing my life. Um, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute because um, I just love the steps. But uh, one of the other things that I hear in AA meetings a lot, which again, I don't have anything against this, but they say things like, uh, my best day now is better than my, wait, my worst day now is better than my best day out there. What a load of crap. Okay? I mean, here, here's what I mean by that. I mean, I, I remember a specific day when I was 22 years old and I, Drove up from Auburn to go see fish in Atlanta, and I ran into this beautiful girl that I went to camp with years earlier in a crowd of 15,000 people. We ran into each other. There was no cell phones, and we ended up going back to her place and smoking her absent boyfriend's date butt all night and drinking her daddy's beer and doing terrible and wonderful things to each other all night long and skinny dipping, and then we saw the sunrise, and then we passed out, woke up, went to Waffle House, and hugged, and I've never seen her since. That day was infinitely better than last Tuesday. <laughs> okay? 
There's no reason for me to try to sit here and be like, yeah, boy, that was a tough day. I'm glad, I'm glad I made it. But, but, the, but the message that, that is not that 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 day wasn't fantastic, which it was, but I would not trade a single day of my sobriety to relive that day. Because that was as good as it got. And it got a whole lot worse. It got a whole lot worse. Um, I came into the rooms uh, when I was, really shortly after that, when I was uh, 25 years old in Birmingham, Alabama at the Jaffe Clubhouse in Five Points. And, you know, immediately was struck with a sense of, wow, there's these people that, you know, if y'all have been to the Jackie Clubhouse in Birmingham, especially to the new meeting, it is it is a loony noony man. I mean, it is a it is a hodgepodge of the most diverse group of people you can imagine. You got medical people and lawyers and bums and prostitutes and preachers. It's awesome. And uh, I remember sitting in there thinking, Wow, what is this? How how is it that all these people are able to get together? And and, and the main thing they're talking about is God, which kind of floored me. Um, and I was able, through just the experience of being around those rooms for a little while, to kind of borrow on the energies around me. And for a period of time, I was able to stay sober because I had found a group of people that seemed to be able to get together and enjoy life without drinking. But over some period of time, in my case, this it was about a year, uh, that started to, to wane. And, and like my, my story is that I love coming to meetings, but what's going to happen to me eventually after I come to meetings is, at first, I find you brilliant and deep. Then I find you repetitive. And then I find you asinine or just stupid. And I find myself going to a meeting because I need to go to a meeting so I can have an experience and I can, and I'm just like, oh shit, here it goes again. I know what he's going to say. And then they say it, and I'm like, oh, God, why do I have to keep coming to these meetings? And that's called being dry drunk in my case. And I've had multiple periods of sobriety in my life. And what happens during those periods of time in my life is I don't consume alcohol, but I don't grow up at all. I don't grow up at all. There's, there's, um, this book talks about there being two things that kind of set alcoholics apart from other people. Um, the first is what they call the allergy to alcohol, which literally just simply means when I put it in my body, it has power over me that the normal drinker it doesn't have. I've got a reaction to consuming alcohol that a normal person doesn't have. Um, and then the second thing is the mental obsession. That after I start drinking, my mind, I just, I'm thinking about that next drink. I start thinking about it when I'm on my way to the second drink. I start thinking about it the next morning when I'm done puking. And I swear I'm not going to pick up another drink. And then about 11 a.m. or 2 o'clock in the afternoon hits. And I'm thinking, that was a rash decision. <laughs> I should maybe just have a little bit to taper down. Because I've heard medically it's bad to just stop. And that mental obsession it is, it's, it's great for, for one reason. is because as far as we know, it's the only part of this uh, disease that we have or this infirmity or whatever you want to call it that can be arrested. Like, I'm never going to be able to uh, drink and not have the allergy kick in. 
I've accepted that. But the mental obsession part is actually something that we can treat. And do we give folks in the room that hope? I mean, I, I want to be able to stand up or, or to sit down, I guess, really, in a, in a room of AA. I, I shouldn't stand up and say this. But tell people, it's <laughs> like, the way you're feeling right now doesn't have to go on. Like, you can, you can have a radical personality change that will deal with that obsession and take it away. And you will never have to keep, you don't have to keep fighting those battles. And, and, and do we have enough boldness to then say, and I can show you exactly how to do that. You know, I don't know about you guys, but there's too much, and this is not going to be a critique of AA, I promise, or at least I'm not intending it to be, but too much in the rooms of AA, I hear people sitting around talking about, well, you know, your program, this, my program, you know, what works for you, or it's like, no, man, I mean, I, I'm a recovered alcoholic because I've worked the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and I share that mess with other people. I'm not ashamed to say that. And it, and it doesn't make me prideful to say that because I've been given a gift from God. I mean, I, this this is His work in me. And why would I be ashamed or embarrassed or shy about telling somebody about that? Because I learned this through really good sponsorship. Um, my sponsor... He is like, he is the Goldilocks of sponsors. He's not too hard. He's not too soft. He's not too hot. He's not too cold. He's just right. And one of the things that he impressed upon me when we sat down for our very first meeting was, John, I'm a recovered alcoholic. I can show you exactly what you need to do to recover from alcoholism. And at that moment, I believe, that confidence that he had in the message that he was delivering to it did not strike me as boasting. It struck me as a lifeline. It struck me as, oh my God, you're telling me there's actually a way. Because what he was actually telling me was that you can be free of this, that you don't have to wake up every day with unrecovered alcoholism, that you don't have to wake up every day and figure this whole thing out again, that your life can be radically transforming, and I can be put onto a trajectory which is going to lead to more and more spiritual growth if I follow a few simple rules. And that's that's what I've based my life around ever since then. When he when he took me through the steps, I'll tell you one I'll tell you one other story real quick. Um, I know I'm kind of jumping around. You know the book says that that we we uh, at least what I thought the book said was we, we tell what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. But it doesn't actually say that. It says what we were like, what happened, and what we are like now. Um, which means that uh, since honesty is an important part of my program, I can sit here and lie to you all day long about what it was like. But if I'm going to tell you about what I was like, um, then I, it's important that I tell you the truth. Um, and also, I need you to make sure that, I, that y'all understand that I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic. So I'll, I'll, I'll get some examples. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I was born in Columbus, raised by a wonderful family, um, and uh, made it to Auburn. My, my drinking started off problematic pretty much as soon as I, I started. I mean, I, I started drinking kind of, you know, early teen years, and it was pretty much problematic from the get-go. Um, and it started taking away some things from me significantly. Uh, by the time that I was at Auburn, um, I was I was part of a really fantastic music group. We were. We were going places, uh, and two of us in there were afflicted with this, and the drinking and drugging derailed us significantly, um, which, uh, which you know, that's just an opportunity missed. I never got it back. Then I got married. Uh, I was convinced that she was going to fix me. Um, she was 
not equipped to fix me. Uh, I thought I started having kids. Surely they would fix me. The love of a father for a daughter would be sufficient. That turns out also not to be sufficient reason for me to stop drinking alcohol. And so what I was like during that whole time was uh, extremely self-absorbed, extremely self-righteous, extremely self-pitying, extremely, I don't know, selfish, egocentric as folks like to call it these days. it is a part. It has been a deep part of my personality ever since, as long as I can remember. Um, that does not make me an alcoholic, by the way. I mean, there's there's tons of restless, irritable, discontent folks out there that ain't alcoholics. I know. And it's not it's not that restless and irritability that makes us alcoholics. It's, it's those two things I told you about earlier. It's the fact that I can't drink without the second drink, taking a drink, and then I, I've got this mental obsession. But what drinking did for me was um, it took away the pain that I was living in in the moment. It enhanced the pleasure that I was experiencing in the moment. And it, over the course of about five years, so by the time I was 25, uh, it had gotten to a point where um, I was drinking, I was you know leaving work in the middle of the day um, and drinking a half pint of vodka so I could get to the afternoons where I would drink a half pint of vodka and then I could get home before my wife and crack a beer and drink that beer so that when she came home, she could smell alcohol my breath and she could see one empty bottle. And that was a charade that I kept up for the first entire about two years of our marriage. Fast forward, um, you know, I, I, I tell this story just because it's, it's the story of my last drunk. My last drunk was not my worst drunk, but it does highlight um, just the the terrible uh, condition that I had gotten myself into. I had been sober for uh, three years. Well, I had 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 a drink in three years. Um, That marijuana will do you some good for a long (laughs) time. But it didn't do me any good for the long term. And then, you know, I progressed to to smoking those vape pills, which is like the crack of marijuana, and that'll put you down too. But uh, after a while, that quit working, and I started drinking again. And I held it together for about a year or so, just kind of drinking beer and the occasional red wine, too much beer. Um, but then, you know, that, that Tito's just says, come on, man, just, just, you know, just one time. And, and I was off to the races again. So three years of not drinking, you know, turned, turned into a year of drinking beer, turned into right back to me, you know, sneaking vodka, just drinking hot vodka right out of the console of my truck, you know. Uh, making trips, I, I got to go get something, you know. I was always like going to get something, you know. Like, like I had to have Fritos at that moment, you know. Um, and and the and the line started again. Or I should, you know what I mean when I say the line started. It just continued, and um, and it got worse and worse. And so I ended up trying to get myself straight a number of times, and finally got in front. Uh, of about a two-month-long bender, uh, where my life was just completely going out of control. Uh, I spent many days driving drunk. I don't mean like I drove drunk two places. I was driving drunk, like as a vocation. I would wake up, I would go to meetings, I would do some of my business stuff, and then around 10 or 11 o'clock, 
I would have to have my drink, and then I'd start drinking, and I would hang at work as long as I could. But then I could duck it went as soon as I could duck out, I would uh, go get another bottle, and then I would drive around drunk for hours. I'd like drive to Macon, Georgia, and back, just drinking the whole time. Uh, drive up to Atlanta, drive around the perimeter, come back. I mean, who the hell would want to do that? But at, that's what I did. And I mean, like, I mean, it's only because this is in a room of AA that I can, like, say this without really being overcome with the shame. Because if I said this at church group or something, people would be like, oh, <laughs> like but, but y'all get me. Y'all understand that, like, this is the insanity of alcoholism. Just not caring about myself, not care about you. You know, I mean, I'd have felt terrible if something would have happened, but I was willing to, but I was willing to roll the dice. This escalated to the point where um, I finally hit a really, really hard uh, few days, and then I did something that I've done a few times, which is I just disappeared completely. You know, turn off light through sixty, check out entirely, um, not answer any phone calls, and what I did was. Uh, I bounced around hotels in Columbus, going and picking up bottles of Jack Daniels, coming back, drinking them, going out, drinking, getting more Jack Daniels, coming back, getting kicked out of one hotel, moving to the next hotel. Um, and I woke up, um, had spent the entire, I had run out of uh, liquor uh, just late enough that I couldn't go get more terrible feeling because even though I was about two liters two liters of Jack Daniels down at that point I needed more and but it was too late to go get some and so I knew I had a dark night ahead and I spent that whole night just throwing up and dry even hot flashes cold sweats jumping in and out of the shower watching forensic files non-stop in a hotel room just it was it was terrible and I woke up that next morning and I had enough. I knew I was really so. I I took up the phone and I called my wife and then I called my dad and I said, "Look, I'm alive. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry." And uh, I'm, I'm coming in, turning turning myself in. And I went and got in my truck and drove to Burger King to get two sausage biscuits to settle the stomach and I drank a big Coca Cola. And uh, I sat in the uh, parking lot across from Peachtree Mall and uh, ate one biscuit and reached over and touched one of the paper bags in my seat and felt the bottle and I could hear a switch and I pulled that bottle of Jack Daniels out and there was about that much Jack Daniels in it and uh, I just broke down crying I mean talk about a miserable song I broke down and absolutely started bawling my eyes out because I knew I was gonna do it. I mean, the, the, the thought that went through my head was, pour it out, it's no big deal. You just talk to your wife, you just talk to your dad, not a big deal, pour it out. Dump it right out the window, eat your second biscuit, go home. But I knew I was gonna drink it. You know, I mean, you know what I mean. I did not have a choice. I mean, for years this had been the case, but this was the most poignant example of drinking against my will. Because I did not want it. And I drank it. And I was off to the races against you. 
that day they, they knew where I was at that point. So they let me go through that next day. And within uh, the next 24 hours, uh, I found myself being shipped off to uh, Lillingway Rehab uh, down in Southeast Georgia, Statesboro, Georgia. And uh, I'm so grateful for that place. So grateful. Because that 30 days that I spent down there, actually, it, it, it really, really uh, put me on the right path. The, I want to mention, too, that there was three individuals who were working with me because I was I was I was trying to get help. This is the other thing I want to tell y'all is like I was going to a therapist. I was going I was talking to my preacher. I was talking to uh, family members, and they were all trying to help me. I was talking to a doctor, um, and they all kept saying the same damn thing, which was like, "If you don't quit drinking, none of this gets better." Which was, I'm like, easier you know that's easier said than done at this point. But had it not been my doctor, my preacher, and my therapist, they, they played a significant role in my life. And I never want to discount what they did for me. Because I didn't I, I did not get 12 step uh, right off the bat by some alcoholic who was looking to share. That's, that's not a yeah. But those three people did. And and I'm so grateful for them. When I when, when I was in rehab, I was I was told that uh, all my countless relapses, uh, being in and out of the rooms for as long as I had been um, did not amount to uh, any reason why I shouldn't be successful in the future. Let me say that again to make sure y'all understood what I just said. That I, it got drilled into me that no matter how many times I had fallen down and failed, that that was not any indication that I was not going to be successful in the future. I was instilled with hope that no matter how many times I had screwed up, it did not mean that I was going to screw up this time but that I had not had the willingness associated with my recovery in the past that was going to be necessary for me to actually recover from this. And the guy, one of the guys who was a counselor there, he came and, and I, I, I told him, I said, I said, Mark, I don't know what's going on. I've tried to work these steps before and, and it just, it's not working. And he said, well, what do you think is wrong? I said, well, I never did my amends. I think at first I said I'm not, I don't pray as much as I need to, and then I said, "Well, I, I never really made any amends." And he goes, "Yeah, that ain't it." And I said, "You got me. I left some stuff out of my fist step. Like I know what it says there about telling it all, and I didn't tell it all." He goes, "That ain't it." And so I said, "You know, okay, smart ass. So what is?" It? <laughs> He said, you ain't never taken step one. And I said, I said to him, I was like, well, no, that's not true. I've, I've taken step one a hundred times. Mm-hmm. He was like, no, you haven't. He's, he said something I've heard other people. At the time, this is the first time I heard it. So the first time you hear an AA, you know, one of these AA phrases, the person who says it's brilliant, then you hear later on that it's been said for 35 years. You're scared <laughs> for the first time. He, I, I thought he was brilliant because he said, he said, you know, if you take that, if you take one word in that first step and change it, I, I want you to think about this. He said, how many times have you admitted you're an alcoholic? And I said, like I said, hundreds and hundreds of times. And he said, well, change that word to accept. Have you ever accepted that you're an alcoholic? And I and I said, I, I think I have, but what does that mean? He says, do you have any reservations in your mind that at some point in the future, you may potentially be able to drink like a normal person again. 
And I was like, no, I don't. And he was like, I'll be honest. And I told him, honestly, after we talked a little bit, I was like, yeah. You know, they were more like fantasies, delusions, that I've got three daughters. And I thought, there's no way I'm not going to toast champagne with one of my daughters. You know, that's right. Or when my dad dies, he loves his 18-year McCallum. There's no way. In honor of my father, <laughs> I will need to just have a finger or two of and tip out for him. And he said, he said, this may not make sense to you now, but those little fantasies, those little exceptions to the rule that you're holding on to are sufficient to prevent you from recovering from alcoholism. I went back to my room and uh, ended up crying like a baby again. I'm a crier, by the way. Um, and I truly had a first death experience after that because I realized I'm not going to sit here and say that was the missing link this whole time, and I will say that. I don't know that. It took what it took to get me where I am, and so I'm not trying to reinterpret the past, but I'm telling you that that, that key fits a lot because I realized that I didn't want to be an alcoholic. And that not wanting to be an alcoholic led me to go, well, then maybe I'm not an alcoholic. And that's all that it needs for us to not be willing to do the work to get recovery. And it like that's one of the things that I hate most about our our uh, condition that we got is that it is uh, it's so simple to derail. It's so easy to derail. Uh, which is one of the reasons why we need the fellowship so much, just to keep us moving in the same direction. I came out and um, I was able, uh, as Todd mentioned, I was able to get in touch with with, um, my sponsor and and we went through the steps um, rapidly um, because he, like I told you before, he was confident in his methodology in this and he was confident that uh, unless I uh, really took this bull by the horns and got after it, and I had very little hope of staying um, dry. And he was right about that. I mean, you know, past experience has shown me that. And the, the other thing I, that, that this brings to mind is um, I am so grateful that he took me through the steps. He used this book and this book alone, and we went through the steps exactly as they're outlined in the AA big book and we did it with the timelines associated like when it said next we did that next when it says we launched we we like did it fast you know what I'm saying we 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 took that into account and I am not a critic of that's not exactly true um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to express strong opinions about how anybody takes the steps but but I'm really grateful that he took me through the steps the way he did because what he realized was that the solution, the whole point of these steps was to get me in contact with God. Why wait? What's the use? What 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 are you trying to do? Why do you want to delay having a higher power that can solve all your problems for 10 months? Like, let's get after it. And that's what he told me. He also made me realize that working on a fifth step means not working on a fifth step. So he gave me three days to do a, a, a four step. I'm sorry, not working on a four step means I mean, working on a four step means not working on a four step. He gave me three days to do it. He was like, if you if you if you show up in three days and your four step's not done, 
You ain't done. I'm not saying that'll work with everybody. It worked with me. You know, because that, what I realized and what he told me was it'll take about three or four or five hours maybe to do a four step. Or it'll take you four hours in a week, or four hours in two months, or four hours in a year. But it'll take you about four hours. And we got together and we, we I did that and we, we did my fist up. And, and I, I want to tell you all this that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so fortunate. I had a really powerful fist up experience. I know no, not everybody does. Um, which is, which I, the reason why I, I say that is like, if you didn't, that didn't mean you did it wrong. Like, I'm convinced of that. Like, there's no, like, promise that you're going to have, like, some magical experience. I had a crazy, like, spiritual experience in step five. And, and I'm just, it, it stuck with me. It's something that's very private and personal to me. It's not something that I share. Um, but, but there, I, I will say this. There, there's a, there is a promise that's built into step five where it says, uh, Something the effect of like the uh, drink problem, you'll have the, the feeling that the drink problem has been removed. Like that happened to me. Like at, at, at that, it was during that hour of power, you know, that, that we, we do after the fifth step when we're going like, did we tell everything or not? But it was during that time that I, I had I had a real powerful spiritual experience. And I'm grateful I did because God was like, I'm going to go ahead and give you a little, little boy because I need you to get done with the rest of this stuff. And what that led into right off the bat was me making amends within the next couple of days. Um, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm very grateful that I did it like that. Not saying that you have to do it like that, but the power of taking the momentum of my fifth step, my sixth and seventh step, and then going right into making amends, I was like, I was on fire, man. I just, I, I just kind of had this bulletproof feeling. And, and for the most part, most of my amends went really well. Some of them didn't go that well. I mean, nobody told me to, to go, you know, kill myself or anything like that. Like, none of them went terribly. I mean, I've heard some terrible ones. Uh, but for the most part, you know, folks were, were very encouraged. Some of them were like, damn, you're finally doing this. Thank goodness, you know. Um, and uh, which... The reason why I'm flying through those, and not, I'm not going to sit here and tell you stories about every single one of them, is because it got me to, by doing my amends, it got me to step 10, 11, and 12. And it's in 10, 11, and 12, which I'm continuing to try to figure out how this thing works on a daily basis. I haven't got it figured out. 10, 11, and 12 assumes you don't have it figured out. That's why it, it I think in step 10 it says continue, 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 continue. It, it's driving home this point that like, hey, you, it's okay if you ain't got it. It's all right. In fact, like in my experience, if I think I got it, that's probably a danger sign. Like I probably don't got it. And so the idea is to stay humble, to stay in that, that, that uh, attitude of turning it over and, and, and seeking and trying to go deeper. That is part of my spiritual life today. It's part of it, and and as the AA program has has become less something that I do one hour a day, but something that I do in my waking hours throughout the day. It it's allowed me the opportunity to take some of these spiritual principles and um, these right actions that I'm supposed to be taking, and really start to recognize how I can show up in other people's lives. Um, 
what I was like then versus what I'm like now, I'm still selfish. I'm still prone to self-pity and self-aggrandizing and, and all the other self-things that we say. But I am less. I am less. And so, uh, that's awesome. Like, that's kind of been the greatest thing. Like, my wife has told me on multiple occasions, she's like, you're just not as much an ass as you used to be. Yes. Which, that's high praise from someone that I've been married to for 23 years. <laughs> I mean, like, for real. Like, that is the highest praise that I can possibly get. You know, you're not as much of a jerk as you once were. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that I, I'm, I'm immune from being jerky or anything else. The, one of the powerful experiences that I had and I continue to have goes back uh, into turning um, our character defects over. We are asking God to remove our character defects. And one of the one of the things that I've, I've just had experience with this recently is that when I'm when I was in the middle of doing my steps and faced with just the awful recognition of, of what my character defects were after doing my fifth step, um, man, I didn't want any of that stuff to hang around. I was like, I was so ready for all that stuff to be gone. Um, but then, like, some of it's useful. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, some of those things, I get some pretty good traction out of. And so to stay in that to stay in that place of wanting to have those things removed from me, it's a spiritual battle for me. Um, because like, I mean, like, I don't want to run around with my wife. I don't want to be unfaithful. I want to honor our relationship and our commitment. You put me on a pontoon boat on Lake Martin for a day. Look at all the, all the boobies around and going into country music playing. And all of a sudden, I might start feeling differently. I might start thinking, oh, man, there might be another way here. Because those things will creep back up in me. And so the reason why I say it is because, like, I'm not going to necessarily be in that state of total surrender, willingness to have God change me and remove all the defense character at, at, any, at all times. There is, there is, my experience shows me that that energy waxes and wanes significantly with the situations and the relationships that I'm around. So what do I have that's a guardrail that's, that's going to act to keep me in line? That's what 10 and 11 do. Y'all know what a guardrail is, right? The guardrail is that thing on the highway. And it's always put in a dangerous spot. Because there's something awful on the other side of that guardrail. So the idea is, we want you, if you're going to go off the road, we want you to hit the guardrail so that you don't go into the ravine. Okay? That's why guardrails are put around curves and on cliffs and all that stuff because it's infinitely better for me not to go into the ravine than it is for me to mess up my fender. And that's what 10 specifically has done for me. 10 has provided me a guardrail, which I, if I'm, if I'm rubbing up against that and I hear the metal scratching, I know I'm getting dangerously close to trouble. Here, here's what I mean by that. I'm not trying to be too metaphorical. I talk to other alcoholics. I pray about things a lot throughout my day. I talk to other alcoholics, and I stay focused in some spiritual literature. Because in my experience, here's what I have found out. That God has given me kind of the opportunity to keep myself on the road using three tools that I've learned in AA. One is to seek Him and to find out what His will for for me is, what I should do in any given situation, and try to have that primarily. But because I'm a ventriloquist for the for God, and I can mimic His voice, 
He's given me you. So I can talk to you. And I can say, hey, does this seem right? Is this right? Should I be doing this? And they can tell me, no, that is not right. right. Or, yeah, that sounds good. And the third thing he's given me is the literature. That I can go back and say, what does the book say about this? What does our literature say about this? Which is a way of saying, what is the combined experience of people who've been through this? And those things act as a guardrail for me. They, what they do is they they keep me from thinking that i got to go this thing alone. Because even in recovery, there's a sense that I'm like, all right, I'm good. You can let go of the rope now. I'm good. But don't ever let go of the rope. I don't ever want any of y'all to let go of the rope. I need it. The other side of that guardrail is, is, is the morning prayer and the meditation step alone. If there's anything I get on a soapbox about, um, actually, there's so much stuff I get on a soapbox about. <laughs> the one thing that I do get on a soapbox about significantly in AA is, is step 11. And uh, the, the reason why I get on a soapbox about it is because uh, what it kind of goes back to, I think, the Founders Day thing, which is like what these guys found. What these guys found out was that if they, they, they had a relationship with God that could solve all their problems, and that they ought to talk to God. They ought to talk. And then they ought to do some time listening to God. And that's it. That's it. Like, these guys kept it really simple. And if you read step 11 in the book, it's like, look at your day. If you want to seek outside books, do that. There's tons of good resources out there. And the reason why this is a soapbox for me is because, like, like I, here's an example of an old time. That old guy, and he says, when I get a sponsee, very first thing I do is teach him to breathe. Oh, you teach him to breathe. <laughs> Tell me about that. He says, yeah, I'm going to give him breath exercises. Okay, and then what are you going to do? Said, well, after about a week or two weeks, uh, if, if they're doing their breath exercises as appropriate, then we're going to work out a mantra. Oh, mantra, this is good. Is this your sponsee? Yeah, yeah, I'm his sponsor. Then I'm going to get him a mantra. We'll get him something out of the book, you know, like painful and incomprehensible demoralization or or thoroughly and honestly. We'll get we'll just figure something out. That, that'll be their mantra. And I said, what do you do then? He said, well, after we go through that, we'll, we'll do that for a couple months. And then and then we'll pick up the 12 and 12. And at this point, I'm coming unglued, right? And I'm like, and I tell the guy, what are you doing? Like, he said, I'm taking the guy through the process. Like, no, man, you're not. You're taking the guy through your process. But you're not taking the guy through the process that our founders found. Because taking someone through the process of AA means getting into the 12 steps. The 12 steps and how to do them are outlined in the big book. Now, I'm not, again, this guy's been sober for a long time, and I'm not hating on him. I'm just saying that, like, that's the kind of convoluted, complicated stuff then I didn't need to hear when I was a desperate suffering alcoholic. If you were going to tell me when I came to ask you to be my sponsor that you were going to teach me to meditate for a month, <laughs> three months before we got into the steps, I would have hoped that I would have had the foresight to be like, thank you, no thanks. Right. But not everybody does. I love I love that the guys in the 12, and those original guys that 
they did not feel like they had to graduate into some sort of um, super advanced sobriety in order to do the 12 steps. They had these guardrails set up of personal accountability and prayer and meditation. And then what did they immediately do? They immediately started taking it to people who needed to hear that message. They didn't have to wait around. I mean, it was an AA number three or AA number four. Bob takes him through the steps in the course of an afternoon and he goes and he founds AA in Washington, D.C. Something like that, two weeks later. And, and I, mean, I know it's a different time now. I'm not, I'm not saying that like that's the way it has to be done or anything like that. But but this this whole thing about, um, again, this your, your experience may not be like this, but like there's, like there's this one group I go to, and they, they always say, three months. At this point, uh, you know, oh, you've done 90 and 90. Six months. Oh, we suggest by now you have a sponsor. And I'm like, what? Yeah. You know, what do they say in nine months? Or like, nine months you can get a service. Maybe you can make coffee in nine months or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but, but, oh, no, no, like nine months within a year, they'll say, you know, hopefully you've worked the steps. I, I, I know everybody's different, but I'm like, buddy, if you got a year, keep drinking. <laughs> like, why, why? Why would you sit around in the rooms of recovery and not do anything to recover for a year? Like, go ahead and keep drinking in two weeks. We can get you right back to the steps. Like, we could do this on the fast train. But again, I'm not, I know I know it sounds like I'm, I'm uh, being critical, and I and, and I am. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the point of that whole little thing was that there's nothing there's nothing in terms of time. There's nothing in terms of uh, wisdom or whatever that that gives us the necessary. Um, ammunition to go and share with a suffering alcoholic the message of recovery. The only thing that is required of us is that we are doing the recovery process. We're not drinking because of it. And we can show somebody there's hope. That was the main thing as I was driving over here today that I wanted to share with you. That there might be somebody in here who doesn't have hope. There might be somebody that is on the verge of thinking, I don't know if this is going to work for me after all. I want to tell you that, that the message of hope is one of the most powerful things that we can give to someone who's in that situation. It doesn't mean that they just had their first, their last drink two weeks ago either. It might be somebody that had their last drink 20 years ago. But that together, with this program that these guys founded, man, we don't ever have to drink again and we don't have to do it alone. One of the most powerful things that I ever heard in AA. We're stronger together. And overwhelmingly, the thing that I want to say too is this. I'm sure my time's running out. This is the problem. Y'all, I mean, I'm not having a clock here. But I'm, I'm going to stop after this. Um, it's just, it's imperative for me. They, they said I look like a Baptist preacher. And, <laughs> and I am. I'm definitely not a Baptist. <laughs> you knew me, you know that. But, um, but can I just tell you that, like, the God of my understanding is powerful, and He is relentless. And in my conception of belief, um, my God is your God too. You might have a different name, but like, like, my God loves everybody, and uh, He is absolutely relentless in his pursuit of us. And when we're ready to stop running, 
we're going to find that he wasn't that far away the entire time. In the bathroom of the house I grew up in, it's really funny, there was two cross stitches that my mama did. It was hanging up in, in my, me and my brother's bathroom. One of them said, be patient, God ain't finished with me yet. And the other one was the serenity prayer. Now my parents were not in recovery. They just, she thought it was a pretty prayer. But it's funny, I didn't think about that too much until about two years ago. And I asked my mom, did, 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 is this real? Did I remember this prayer? She's like, yeah. I said, you know, you had put right in front of me from the time that I was a little kid the two most important things that I was getting up learning in return. Total surrender to God and patience with myself. And to me, y'all, that is that's that's the relationship that I have with God today. <clears throat> I imagine that if I was able to sit down face to face with God, the first words out of his mouth would be, You know I love you. And that would be enough. Thank you.